As a reminder, last week we began a series of messages that will address the question that's being asked by Christians and non-Christians alike. And the question simply put is this, what does our future hold? And that's a question that brings about a variety of views and one in which even the so-called experts or brilliant minds of our day differ. We need to be very careful as to whom we listen because I have discovered that even the most brilliant minds can often become very dull in certain areas. Let me give you an example of something I read recently. It says a scientist at NASA had developed a gun built specifically to launch dead chickens at the windshields of airliners, military jets, and the space shuttle, all traveling at maximum velocity. The idea was to simulate the frequent incidents of collisions with airborne birds in order to test the strength of these windshields. It says uh, British engineers heard about the gun and were eager to test it on the windshield of their new high-speed trains. So arrangements were made to borrow the gun, but when the gun was fired, the engineers in Britain stood shocked as the chicken hurtled out of the barrel, crashed into the shatterproof shield, smashed the windshield to bits, crashed through the control console, snapped the engineer's backrest, and embedded itself in the back wall of the cabin. They were horrified by all of this, and the British engineers sent NASA the disastrous results of their experiment along with designs of the windshield and requested suggestions from the United States NASA scientists as to what to do to resolve their problem. NASA, after reviewing all of the evidence and the data, submitted a very brief and simple response to the British engineers, simply saying this, thaw the chicken next time. <laughs> the brilliant minds of our day. The point is obvious, I think. When it comes to answering our question, what does the future hold, there's only one person or one place to turn for definitive answers. We don't need anybody's opinion. We don't need theories. We don't need suggestions. We don't need half-truths. We need the full truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help us God. And that's to uh, go to the creator of truth himself and actually the creator of time himself. Because, you see, God is the author of time, and he created it for our benefit, he also created it to fulfill his purposes. And God, being eternal, is not bound or restricted by time. We are told that to God, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years are as if one day. God is not limited by time because God knows the beginning, he knows the present, he knows the future, and from God's vantage point, it has already taken place and it has already happened. Psalm 139, a very comforting thought to all of us yesterday at our memorial service was simply this that God knows every one of our days before we even were conceived in our mother's womb. Before we even lived one day, God knows the life expectancy and it's appointed for man that we die and then comes judgment. And so the comfort that we have in all this is, is that, you know what, God is not surprised by the events and the circumstances of this lifetime. God is in control. He's in total control. And we know that time is not something that is confusing to God. For he is an eternal God that sits outside of the realm of time, outside of the restrictions and the boundaries, and he sees the beginning and he sees the end. And he has chosen to give us the information that we need, that he feels we need, to deal with the question, what does the future hold? In our last session, we received answers from God uh, concerning the question that we dealt with in its entirety to the, to the degree that we did, and that was, when will Jesus return? Because oftentimes in Christian circles, when things get to be a little dark and bleak, we start to look for the return of Jesus Christ. And we learn these five things from the Word of God. 
we were told that Jesus will return when we are not expecting him. So therefore, we need to be watchful and we need to be ready. For the return of Jesus Christ is a surprise to many who will be here on the face of the earth. And uh, the confusion that we have is we sometimes confuse the the, uh, second coming of Christ to the earth with the gathering of God's people in the air. And we clarified that as we went through it. So we know that Jesus will return when we are not expecting him. So we are to be watchful and we are to be ready. And God's people are not to be looking for signs, but we are to be looking for the blessed return of our Savior. Number two, we learned that church-age believers are to be resurrected at the time that Jesus returns. Now, that does not Jesus mean that he will return to the earth. He will return to the air. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is answered very clearly that those who are the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we who are alive at that particular glorious moment will be taken to him so that where he is, so that where he is as he said in John chapter 14, and he's preparing a place for us, one day he will return and gather us to himself, and we will be with him for all of eternity. Number three, we also learn that Jesus will return when religious apostasy multiplies and deceives the world. Number four, we also know that he will return when all come to repentance. Now that term all does not mean every person. There's not such a thing as universal salvation that every person that's ever born or every person that's ever breathed or walked the surface of the earth will at one day be forgiven for their sins. The Bible doesn't teach that. In fact, the Bible teaches very clearly the opposite, that there will only be a few who will be saved from the consequences of sin because they rejected God's plan for salvation, which was to believe and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. And that the road to destruction was broad, and many more people will choose to travel that route than those who will, re- that, who will humble themselves and receive the gift that God has to offer in forgiveness in Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus will return when all come to repentance and all is all who choose to accept the gift that God has offered. Whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And the fifth thing that we saw is that Jesus Christ will return when the tribulation period is over. That is a period of time in our, in our future, a seven-year period of time, which we will go through in great detail in a future session. But we know this that at the end of that seven years, that great day of tribulation, that day of distress, the day of Jacob's woes, that at the end of that seven-year period of time, you can mark it down on a calendar that Jesus at the end of that time will return to this earth and he will take his stand here on this earth and he will set his feet on the Mount of Olives exactly where he left when the angel said in Acts 1.11, said, Why do you stand staring into the sky at Jesus? For this Jesus who has been taken up before you will return in exactly the same way. And he will take his place on the Mount of Olives and his feet will stand there. And he will usher in a period of time called the Great Millennium or Thousand Year Reign of Christ. And we'll study that also in a future session. But that will usher in that thousand year reign which will be immediately followed after that by eternity. And it's an exciting thing to recognize that God in his authority has given us this information. It's not speculation. It's not wishful thinking. It's not uh, we hope this is all true. We know that it's true because God is, God's word is trustworthy and we can rely upon what he says. Today I want to focus on the one area that we discussed last time and that was this that Jesus will return when religious apostasy multiplies and deceives the world and that's really our topic for our time that we have here today because one subject that's not often covered in prophecy conferences and classes is religious apostasy and the last days 
And yet the Bible tells us very specifically that religious apostasy is a sign helping us know when the Lord's return is near. And if that's the case, we need to know and understand what God means when he talks about religious apostasy. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where we are introduced to this thought that we're going to examine in greater detail throughout this session, not only this week, but also next week. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're introduced to the concept or idea of religious apostasy. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we'll start with the first verse, as this passage uh, gives us insight into the problem of apostasy. It says, Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and notice what he says here, and the gath- our gathering together to him. That term gathering together is the one that was introduced to us last time in 1 Thessalonians 4 that has to do with the fact that Jesus will return in the air, not to the ground, but in the air, and gather to himself all of us who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. According to the Bible, we are those who are classified as being in Christ. If any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away, all things become new. It says that we who are in Christ will be gathered together to him. He says... We request you with regard to this matter that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or to be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if it's from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. What we need to understand and recognize here is that they were going through tremendous religious persecution. They were being persecuted for putting their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And because of all of this, they wrongly interpreted the circumstances around them as they must be in this day of tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel, the seven years that are even yet in our future, they misunderstood the persecution that they were going through and were convinced that they were in the day of great tribulation. And Paul said basically to them, hey, you know what, don't be confused by the circumstances around you and and above all, do not be confused by the advice and the counsel that you're getting from people around you He said, because, you know what, you're getting all shook up, and most people that I know who are shaken by circumstances of life are people that are not aware of the truth of God's Word. Isn't that true? Most of us get all shook up, man, and we're all agitated and we're all rattled, and the reason that we are is because we do not have a firm understanding and a grip of the Word of God in our life. See, those who are me- that meditate on the Word and have the Word of God deeply implanted in their soul will be successful and we won't be tossed to and fro with every trick, uh, trickery and wind of doctrine that comes up and everybody's opinion and philosophy about what's going on. We have an anchor that holds us stable when all else around us is just going crazy. And I love what he says. Don't get all shook up. Don't get you know, agitated by it. Think about John 14. Jesus told his disciples he would be soon crucified, that he would go into Jerusalem, that he would die, and that he would be leaving them, that Peter would deny him. And the first thing that that happened when they heard all this was what? They got all shook up. What are we going to do? How are we going to handle it? How are we going to get by? Jesus very simply said this. Hey, you know what? In my Father's house, don't be troubled by what's going to take place. Don't be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. And if that wasn't so, I wouldn't tell you that because I can't lie. What I'm telling you is true. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will one day return and gather you to myself that there you will be with me for all of eternity. Wow, that's good stuff. 
says, you don't, don't get shaken by this. And he says in verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you or try to convince you otherwise. It says, for it will not come. What's it? It is the day of tribulation, the day of Jacob's woe, the 70th week of Daniel, those seven year period of, that seven-year period of time. It says, it will not come unless what? The apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes a seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? What he's saying was, man, how quick we forget the truth of the word of God. Man, we got to go back and start all over again. And that's good because, you know what, repetition is very good as far as a learning tool. If you stop and think about it, I hear people all the time tell me, you know what, I mean, I just don't have a good memory say, okay, well, what's your name? And they immediately tell you. Where do you live? They tell you that. What's your social security number? Most tell you that. What's your address? Tell you that. What's your phone number? Tell you that. Where do you work? Tell you that. What's your address? Tell you that. Hey, you know what? All of us have pretty good memories. And the reason we remember those things is because it is repetitious. The reason we don't know the Word of God is that we do not spend enough time repeating it to ourselves and learning it and studying it and meditating on it. This is not that hard. But we're making it a lot more difficult. Why? Because, frankly, we're lazy. That is not politically correct. And I don't care. Because if it's truth, here's the way this works. The only people that get mad at me or angry when I say things like that are the ones who are guilty. Right? Because the rest of you are going, hey, I study the Word of God. I got, you know, I'm in it. I'm, I'm, I'm meditating on it. I'm repeating it. I'm spending quiet time. Man, I love the Word of God. And before you even turn, I already know what you're going to turn to. And I already know what that section says. And you know what? And you're not guilty. So when I say stuff like you're lazy, it flies right over your head and it hits the person behind you. <laughs> Next time, I just want all the, the, guilt, the guilt-free people to duck. So it'll hit exactly who it needs to hit. But you know what? God has a good way of doing that. I don't have to do it. When the word of God goes out, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And the spirit of God convicts, the, convicts your heart and just hits you right where you're at. And I love it. Because it's, not, it's, it, it's not about me. This is about you. And it's about you and your relationship with God. So as we look at this, he already said, hey, don't you remember these things? The word apostasy, which we're introduced to, look at verse 3. It says, let no one in any way deceive you. And he says in any way because it comes in a variety of forms, this deception. He says, for it will not come, what? The day of tribulation will not come unless what? The apostasy comes first. Let us define the term apostasy. The word apostasy simply means this, to, to uh, stand away or to depart, to stray. Now, the 180 degrees from that is simply the, the command that we find all throughout Scripture, and that's this. Be steadfast and immovable. The opposite of being steadfast and immovable is apostasy, where we are departing from that which is the foundation and the truth of the Word of God. God says, be steadfast and immovable. The world says, hey, you know what? Consider some other options. The Apostle Paul said, hunker down, dig in, like a guy who's protecting the goal line. For those of you who like sports illustrations, and for the rest of you, you can take a minute off. 
But he's saying, dig in and don't let anybody push you backwards. Don't let anybody take your spot that's rightfully yours. For those of you who like baseball, it means you dig into the batter's box and you don't move. And it doesn't matter if somebody throws a fastball at your head. You just stay in there because if you get hit, you at least get to first base. <laughs> or somebody that pinch runs for you gets to go to first base. <laughs> but the point is this. You're making a statement and you're saying that, hey... That is my territory, it's non-negotiable, and I'm not moving from it. So you want to hit me, you'll hit me every time I'm up, but I'm not moving. You know what ends up happening? A pitcher has to start pitching around that because he knows the guy's not going to back down. You see, God's people have got to become people that understand that standing firm on the word of God is not negotiable. It is not negotiable. People can come to me and discuss a whole bunch of other things. But I'm just telling you publicly right now, and I've told them in private conversations, that teaching and preaching the Word of God is not negotiable. I am called by God and compelled by God to do what God has gifted me to do. It is not negotiable. And it should not be negotiable for any of us who call ourselves children of God. It is the only anchor God has given us to give us insight into the deception and the heresy that will take place as apostasy increases in the days ahead. We need to recognize that. We need to understand that. So now we're in a position to take a look at what the Bible says about religious apostasy. Number one, what I want to point out to you is I want you to notice the development of religious apostasy. First of all, we need to recognize and understand that religious apostasy existed in the past. It existed in the past. It's important to realize that there is nothing new about departing from the Christian faith. It's not new to our generation. In fact, it was a problem in the early church. I'll give you an example. Turn back a few books to Galatians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Galatia uh, regarding this particular area that we're discussing. And here's what he has to say in Galatians chapter 1, starting with verse 1. Now, it's important as you're turning there to realize that this letter was written in 49 A.D. And Paul writes this to the church in Galatia. He says, Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, I like that, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us out of this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Notice what he says. I am absolutely amazed that you are so quickly departing him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. That even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Notice that in 49 AD, Paul is rebuking them saying, I am absolutely shocked. I'm horrified. I'm amazed that you would so quickly depart him for a gospel that's not another gospel at all because gospel means this, good news. There is no other good news. Jesus Christ and Him crucified is the only good news that man needs to be right with God. There is no other gospel. And he's saying, I'm amazed that you would depart from that good news 
and turn to other news that people and man interjects. And even if it's an angel from heaven who comes and tells you personally that there's something different than the good news you've already heard, you know what? He is not, that, that, that being is not from God. It's from the pit of hell itself, and he should be accursed. And the same with any human being that would change the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to talk about that because my heart breaks every time I hear people who are trapped in religious systems who have been confused by the philosophies of men and have taken them and deceived them into buying into something other than the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't get any simpler than this, that God loved man and sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross in our place, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That is the message of the gospel, that he was resurrected three days later, proving that he had the power to forgive our sins and also to conquer death and to give us eternal life. That is the simplicity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and any other message other than that is accursed by God, and God help those who propagate such lies and deceit. Paul said, I'm amazed. I'm amazed that you would turn to something else. What could be better news than that? 2 Corinthians 11.13, he warned also of such false apostles and deceitful workers transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And they bore a message, or they, they would come with a message that was contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 2.1, we also read, there were also false prophets among the people. 1 John 4.1 tells us that many false prophets have gone into the world. Jude 4, it was noted that certain men have crept into the church and they crept in unnoticed. And we need to recognize the deceitfulness of those who are pr promoting messages that are contrary to the word of God. They oftentimes sneak in and they sneak in unnoticed. And we listen to it and we buy into it because we don't test what they say and examine it against the word of God. The word of God is our anchor to protect us from deceitful and false prophets and false messengers that are here to promote a message other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians was written in 57 A.D., 2 Peter in 66 A.D., 1 John in 90 A.D., Jude between the years of 70 and 80 A.D. The point is very simple. A religious apostasy or the departing of the faith has existed from the very beginning, and it has been a work of Satan to try to deceive those who would trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. You see, religious apostasy was present in the early church, and it progressed through the centuries. In the 16th century, Martin Luther was convinced that the apostasy of his day would lead to the imminent return of Jesus Christ. We need to be aware of that. You know why? Because Martin Luther was one of the greatest theologians that ever lived, and he was convinced that the departing of the Christian faith in his day was going to lead to the imminent return of Christ. And you know what? He was wrong. Jonathan Edwards was living in the middle of the 18th century, shortly before this nation was formed as a republic. And he reflected on the way in which religion had declined from the year 1620 to 1750. And he, like Luther, was convinced that the world was going down the tubes rapidly and it was running out of time, that Jesus was going to come at any moment. Jonathan Edwards was also wrong. And so I kind of stepped back a little bit and realized that two of the greatest theologians that have ever lived were convinced that the dark days of their time was immediately going to precede the return of Jesus Christ. And both of them were wrong. Yet, though they may have been wrong about the return of Christ, we are not wrong to say that we are 450 years closer to the return of Christ than Martin Luther and that we're 235 years closer to the return of Jesus Christ than Jonathan Edwards. 
And though both of those were wrong as far as their timing or prediction, apostasy is nothing new. And we can say with confidence that it is worse today than it has ever been in the history of mankind. We look at what's going on in the present. Jesus warned in Matthew 24, 5, he said, For many will come in my name and deceive many. Mark 13, 22, he said, For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive. Luke 21, 8, Take heed that you do not become deceived, for many will come in my name. 2 Timothy 3, 13, Paul observed, But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Peter wrote in 2 Peter 2, 1, There will be false teachers among you. All of these indicate that the rise of false teachers will increase as the world moves closer to the last days. Now, I've got something I want you to think about. Now, as I was praying about this and preparing it, it was something that, it, 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 that was one of those things that you just stop and you don't think about very often, but God had a way of making me think about it, and that is this. There are no shortages. There's no shortage of churches, for example, here in Orange County, California, I counted, and this is a kind of crazy thing sometimes you do when God kind of puts something on your heart. I counted in the inland area yellow pages over 900 churches within probably a 15-mile radius of where we are today. Over 900. Yet, how often do we hear it said, I can't find a church that is committed to preaching and teaching the Word of God. I hear that often. And to me, it's an indictment. And it's also a sign to observe very carefully as to what God is warning us. That there will be a great apostasy that will take place one day. And it's gathering momentum even as we are here today. Over 900 and some churches in an area. And we've got people saying, I can't find a church that is committed to teaching and preaching the word of God. And the reason for it is very simple. Because we have lost the anchor that God has given us to give us stability through the deceit and the lies of our day. We are so afraid and worried about getting people to sit in seats and raising money and building buildings and offering programs that we have forgot that the only thing that God has entrusted to us is the greatest treasure that man has ever received from God, and that is the Word of God, the entire counsel of God, the mind of God in written form, so that we know exactly what to expect as far as the future is concerned, and that we have truth to offer, and truth sets people free. We have become a culture that's so interested in entertaining people so they feel good about coming to church. Listen, you know what? God will comfort you if you need comforted, and He will afflict you in your areas of comfort where you are wrong before God. Because God does not want you to sit here and think you're okay with Him if you're not, and have you die and spend eternity in hell separated from Him because no one had the, the courage and the guts to tell you exactly the plan of God in your life. You see, the Word of God sets people free because the Word of God is truth. And we're so concerned about making people feel good about themselves that we've departed from, and that's apostasy. We've departed from the truth that God has given us and we've embraced the philosophy of men who come up with all these wonderful ideas. 
I see in the paper and I cringe at times of made, you know, big churches in this area who have full page ads as far as what's coming up in the future and what celebrity and what star and what singer and who's coming next as if it was a, an event that was at the pond that was going to be another concert to go to, another thing of entertainment to listen to. And once you start going down that path, guess what? You can't back up. Because the only people coming are people that want to hear what they want to hear and feel good. They're not people that are committed to knowing God and knowing His truth and applying it in their life. Once you go down that path, you can't come back. And you're stuck. And you know what that's called? A departure from the faith. Ooh. Ooh. Ah. Ooh. And you know, and the, and the sad thing about it all, it's not going to get any better. It's going to get worse. Because even churches that have a history of being committed to teaching and preaching the Word of God will be infiltrated by people who have another agenda. And they will deceive even those who held on to that stability and that anchor. And they will soon be swayed to go a different direction. It's going to get worse before it gets better. And that has to do with the future. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the passage in verse 3, we read, Let by any means, for that day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy, the falling away, comes first. Now that term, the apostasy, specifically, is an aggressive and climatic revolt against God, which will clear the way for the coming world later. It'll be the apostasy to end all apostasies. We are slowly departing from the truth of the Christian faith. We're slowly departing from the Word of God. And there will be a day that comes in the future when that event takes place. After the gathering of of God's people, after the rapture of the church, when the apostasy takes place, that at that moment, when that radical, climatic revolt against God takes place, then the coming world leader will be revealed and he will, he will sign a treaty with Israel and we will be able to know exactly who he is, although those of us who are in Christ could care less because we will be with the Lord. For those of the rest of you who are still checking this program out, I'm just trying to give you as much information as you need. So here's what we've got to deal with. And we'll talk about that. Are you really sure that the church is going to go through the tribulation or not? No, you've got to come back for that too. Okay. Now, the question is this. As we look at the events of the future, what, what separates or, or differentiates our day from the days that we just refer to? What is so different about today than the days of Martin Luther, for example? What's so different about the day, today than the days of Jonathan Edwards, for example? And I'll tell you in one word, communication. Communication technology is what separates us from at any time uh, prior to our particular period of time in human history. And the reason I say that is this. See, there are always pockets of apostasy throughout the world. There are always those who are departing from the faith. But because of technology and the ability to communicate globally, the heresies that we are referring to are being sent internationally almost instantaneously. We've got satellite technology. We've got internet technology. We've got technology that makes almost every place in the world accessible. And because of that, the lies and the deceit that sometimes would just plague local areas now are global. And so that's why I'm saying, and I don't think that I'm stepping out on any limb here by saying this, we are closer to these these days, to the apostasy and the return of Jesus Christ, obviously, than Martin Luther or Jonathan Edwards. 
but there's good reason to be looking at basically this. You better have a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other hand. And that is exactly what God wants us to be, prudent as we discern what's going on around us and examine it in light of what the Word of God has to say. So that is what we need to notice as far as the development of religious apostasy. Now the description that God gives us of of religious apostasy basically covers several areas. And uh, some of these we'll go into greater detail next week. But for today I want to mention a few that um, that are obvious or a concern. Number one, messianic claims. Now what that means is Jesus in Matthew 24, 5 said that many will come in my name. Many will come in my name and they will say, I am the Christ. This describes many people who claim to provide salvation, who proclaim to provide a way of salvation. There are many that come in his name who proclaim these things. And like no century before, we have been plagued by those who attempt to declare themselves Messiah or a Messiah of some sort. Now, what's interesting as we look at this, there are those who would deceive millions of people, and I'm going to rattle off a list of them. And I don't care exactly what it is that you think about the list that I'm going to give you, but this is the way that it is. And the reason for it is simply because Jesus said, many will come in my name and they will deceive the multitudes. Every time I see a commercial for the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, I cannot help but remember what the Word of God has to say. Why? And I'll explain in a moment why they are deceitful workers, why they are false teachers, because they deny Jesus Christ and Him crucified. When you ask them what they believe about Jesus, they'll say that He is a God. What do you mean He is a God? Is He the God, the eternal God? He is a God. Well, what do you mean? One of many gods? Exactly. Well, wait a minute. How did He become a God? He became a God by doing good works. And that is blasphemy and that is heresy. Jesus Christ said that He is God. He said, before Abraham existed, I am. He said, if you have seen the Father, you have seen Me. Jesus Christ is God. Period. He is not a God. He did not become a God. He did not do good works and earn his way somehow into a position of deity. Jesus Christ is the eternal God, manifested as the Son. And we need to recognize and understand that's what the Bible teaches. There's also those in Christian science and Scientology, Mormonism, the Unification Church, and Jehovah Witnesses. Every one of these groups have deceived millions of people with their heresy and their lies, denying the deity of Jesus Christ, denying the gospel of Jesus Christ as the only way to be forgiven for man, the only plan of man. And that is just the way it is. And, I, you know, and we need to help them understand that they are evil workers. They are deceitful. And some of them are the most well-intended people you ever meet. And some of them are the nicest people. And you know what? The nicest people are the most dangerous. Because we let our guard down, don't we? Let's face it. If they were rude and ignorant and stupid and mean, no one would buy into it. Because every person I've ever heard sucked into any of these things said, but they're so nice. But they're so wrong. Well, how do you know that? Hey, because the Word of God is my anchor and my point of stability. And it's not even my opinion whether I like them or not like them. That's not the issue. The issue is that we examine everything against the truth of the Word of God. And what doesn't line up, we throw out. The second thing, miraculous signs. Miraculous signs. Boy, we live in a perverted generation that just has to have signs. We want to see signs. We want to see emotion. We want to see fervor. 
We want to see miracles. Tomorrow at 11, come, we'll have a miracle service. Gee, we sure hope God's part of it. You know, it's nice, you know, maybe God, you know, doesn't want to be part of it tomorrow at 11. You know what I mean? It's just amazing to me. We got people who set times when God's going to do miracles. Really? Look at Revelation chapter 13. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 10. We're going to look at that in great detail next time. But I just want to throw this one out to you. Revelation chapter 13. We need to recognize and understand that we live in a generation that seeks signs. Revelation 13, look at verse 11. John writes, And I saw another beast coming out of the earth, and he had two horns like a, like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. It says, And he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. And he makes the earth and those who dwell in it worship the first beast whose fatal wound was healed. And he performs great signs so that even he makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which has been given to him to perform in the presence of the beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come back to life. You notice what it said? He has signs. He can even make fire come down out of heaven. Does anybody, does that jog anybody's memory as far as scripture is concerned? Do you remember the scene with Elijah? And the fire that came down out of heaven? Does anybody remember anything that took place in the Exodus when God was trying to notify Pharaoh through signs and wonders that what Moses said was accurate, that God had sent him to Pharaoh to say, let my people go? And he demonstrated his authority by the signs and the wonders, but then the magicians came along, and what did they do? They imitated some of them, didn't they? Hey, you know what? There's a reason and a purpose for all that, because what goes around comes around, and humanity is going to go full circle. And we're going to look at it again in the end days for those who are here, and they're going to be deceived by the signs and the wonders. We live in an age today where people are getting all, they get all confused by signs, don't they? Listen to me. You've got to examine every sign against the Word of God. You've got to examine every sign as to whether God gets all of the glory or human beings get the praise and the credit. You've got to examine every sign to see if those signs are leading you to faith in Jesus Christ or leading you away from Him toward others. You've got to examine every sign. Can God heal today? Absolutely, God heals if He chooses to heal. But we need to recognize and understand that in those cases that God gets all the glory, that God gets all the praise, that Jesus Christ is glorified through all of it and not any human being. But we live in a generation, they all want signs, huh? You know, oh, we're going to this church. Why? Because there's miraculous things happening. What's happening? People are crawling around on the ground barking like dogs. Wow, that's miraculous. Wow, I can't wait to be a part of that. How does that line up with Scripture? Why is that so entertaining or so attracting? Because there's no depth to our walk with God. There's no depth to our understanding of the Word of God. Man, when I hear stuff like that, the first thing I do is run! Run and go to church that preaches and teaches the Word of God. If I start crawling around up here barking like a dog, I'm telling you right now, you, you better run, and you know what, you don't have to worry about it because you'll see Linda won't be in the back. Oh, you know what I noticed too? Look, somebody put a little clock up on the wall so I could see it. I know my name's not under there saying, Chuck, look at this, but... I can ignore that, I can ignore this, and I can ignore you getting up and walking out. I'm good at that. Number three, let's look at this, and we'll, we'll put this together in closing. I want you to notice that there will be doctrinal, what's called doctrinal heresies. 
doctrinal heresies. 2 Peter 2.1 describes them as destructive heresies. According to the Bible, when we see these things, we should reject them as exactly that. Her- her- heretical, false teaching in opposition to the truth of the Word of God and abandon it and flee from it as quickly as possible. The first heresy that secretly has been brought into the church from the very beginning, if you've got your Bibles, look at 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. One of the first things that the enemy tried to do was to to deny the person of Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 4, look at verse 1. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Notice what he says. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of Antichrist, which has already come into the world. To deny the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. The Bible clearly teaches in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and everything that came into creation came into being because of Him, and apart from Him, nothing has come into being. The Bible goes on to say, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. One of the earliest heresies in the church and earliest apostasies was that there were those who were denying the humanity of Jesus Christ. It's important that we recognize that we believe that Jesus Christ became man, and the reason is simple because flesh and blood could not shed its because flesh and blood is necessary to shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sin. The Bible says without the the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. A spirit could not offer himself up. He had to be flesh and blood. That is what the Bible teaches. He was crucified and nailed on the cross. The first heresy that was injected into the church was that Jesus Christ was mystical. He was spirit. He was not humanity. He did not take on flesh. And the Bible says, yes, he did. He was born of a virgin. He came into this world. He took on flesh and we beheld him. And the glory was a glory as of only begotten of the Father. And he was full of grace and he was full of truth. And that was the first heresy, one of the first heresies that was injected into trying to distort the gospel of Christ. The second thing is this. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The second thing that they tried to do was deny the essentials of the gospel and that one of the essentials of the gospel very clearly is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, notice the simplicity of the gospel. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you, have, which you received, in which you also stand. That you stand firm, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you of the first importance, or foremost importance, what I have also received, that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That is the Gospel. We go on and look at verse 12. We read this. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? One of the first things they wanted to do is deny that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith also is vain. He goes on to say, Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. 
If we say that Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we are false witnesses. We are liars. We are deceivers. We're false workers. We're false prophets. It says because we witnessed against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. Notice what he's saying. If we go and say that Jesus Christ was not raised from the dead, we, we deny God who raised him from the dead. Jesus rose from the dead. It says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still dead in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. The comforting words that we have here are this. That we can have confidence and assurance in everything that God says because God backed up His words with actions. Jesus Christ and Him raised from the dead is the greatest testimony of the truth that what we believe is true. The world has tried to set out from the very beginning to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And open-minded men who sat out to try to disprove the resurrection knew that if they disproved the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Christian faith would fall away and just disappear like so many other false religious beliefs. And as they sat down to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ, many of those men who were open to the truth dropped on their knees and asked God to forgive them and invited Jesus Christ into their life. Some of the greatest theologians of our time were men who sat out to try to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when the evidence was so overwhelming, they dropped on their knees, they asked God for forgiveness, and they believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. You see, if Jesus Christ is not raised, you know what? We're all to be pitied because everything we believe hinges on that one thing, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And every Easter as we celebrate the resurrection, we should never take for granted that it's just a time to, ba- to make honey-baked ham. But it is a time to praise God for the fact that everything we believe hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But you know what they try to do from the beginning? To deny the resurrection. Hey, if we can disprove the resurrection, then everything these people believe is foolish. Why? Because we believe that we will one day be raised from the dead. Why? Because Jesus Christ himself was raised from the dead. We believe that we're going to have entrance into heaven because Jesus paved the way. We believe that when we're absent from the body, we'll be present with the Lord because Jesus paved the way. We believe that one day that there will be a resurrection and we will be resurrected from the ground or wherever our remains are that God will raise us up and we will be reunited with our spirit and we will have physical bodies for all of eternity and we believe that because Jesus Christ has a resurrection, re- resurrected body. What is, in, what is corruptible one day will be raised and be incorruptible. We believe all of that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We need to recognize that that is something that we see all the time in religious articles all around. The, the, the denial that Jesus Christ was ever raised from the dead. And that is heresy. The third thing is this. There's also a, a, a movement to deny that Jesus Christ will return. We, all, we saw that last time in 2 Peter chapter 3. Jot it down and look at it. There will be those who are scoffers and mockers say, hey, you know what? When is he really coming back? It's been almost 2,000 years. He's not back yet. I guess he was just blowing smoke, huh? And the scoffers and the mockers mock the fact that we believe very clearly because the Word of God teaches us that one day we believe this. That if we're alive the day that Jesus comes to gather his church, that we'll be gathered with him. And we believe one day, at the end of the great tribulation period of time, 
that Jesus Christ will return and he will take his place on this earth as he promised. And we see it in Daniel chapter 2. We saw it throughout the book of Daniel. We see it in Daniel chapter 12 that the Old Testament saints will be resurrected on that day that Jesus Christ will stand on the Mount of Olives and it will usher in the kingdom of God which will last for an eternity after the thousand year reign is over. We believe that. And the reason we believe it is because the word of God is trustworthy and clearly teaches it. And in closing, let me finish with one last thing. And I want to get into a little more detail on this next week, and that's this. Another secret heresy that has been introduced to the church is the denial that salvation is by grace and by grace alone. It is perhaps... one of the most destructive heresies that man has ever become a victim to. The Bible is very clear that it's by grace and by grace alone that you are saved. It is not a matter of works. It is by God's grace through faith. There's no works involved. There's nothing that you can do John 3.16 doesn't make it any simpler than this. For God so loved this world that he sent and gave us his only begotten son. That whosoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I hate the heresy that has been introduced that grace and God's grace alone is not sufficient. Because at best what it does is it keeps people who believe in Jesus Christ in bondage to a system of works and it confuses them that, the day, that when the day comes when they will die, that they will spend an eternity with God based on what Jesus did. At the very best, it confuses them so they're in bondage all of their life even though they've come to believe in Jesus Christ. And at the very worst, it smothers the gospel of grace to the point where man believes that somehow we can work our way into heaven. I want to show you a passage of Scripture in closing in Titus chapter 3, and we'll close on this. In Titus chapter 3, we read these words. Three, we, whatever. That's like uh, King James kind of, sort of. Titus chapter 3, follow with me very clearly. Because I know that some of you are here and you are really confused about what it takes to have a relationship with God. I know that because this message that is a false message is so widely held and so vocally preached that it is a message of confusion. And I want you, if you are confused, to listen very carefully to the words of God. In Titus chapter 3, verse 3, we read this. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, and spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which have been done in righteousness, for there is none righteous, no, not one, but according to His mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified solely by His grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life, that we are going to be penciled in the will of God for those who what? Who believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. It is so important that we recognize and understand that it is based on God's mercy, on God's extending a gift to you and me that we can either receive or that we can reject. It is not based on deeds of righteousness. We cannot do enough good stuff to ever be pleasing to God. And in fact, our attempt to do so denies the very gift that God has given us and what Jesus did for us on the cross. It is Jesus and only Him and our acceptance of His death on our behalf that makes us right with God. I cannot say that any more clearly than what the Word of God says. And we need to understand and recognize one of the greatest doctrinal heresies in our world today is teaching people it's Jesus plus this or it's this work and Jesus somewhere in the picture. It is all Him or nothing. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes unto the Father but through me, says Jesus Christ our Lord. And let me tell you something. There is nothing more freeing than to put your faith and trust in Christ. And there is nothing that will keep you in bondage more than trying to please men and a list that they give you of stuff that they think you need to do to be made right with God. Knowing Jesus Christ and Him crucified is the most freeing experience that any human being can have because I know in whom I believe and I know that He's able to keep that which I've given unto Him against that day. Father, thank You for Your Word. We just thank You that You've given us warnings as to this apostasy that has taken place and has been continuing throughout church history. We thank You that You warn us of these destructive heresies and these false teachers and prophets who will come in Your name introducing destructive heresies that will just ruin and destroy people. God, help us to realize and understand that your word is truth and that you sanctify us in your truth, that you set your truth aside, and it's truth that comes from the very throne room of God that helps us to see as you want us to see and realize that it's Jesus Christ and him alone is the plan for salvation for man. For Jesus himself said he came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God, I just pray for those who hear these words that have struggled with trying to work their way to heaven and have been frustrated by the attempt that today they would just bow their hearts before you in simple submission of prayer to say, Jesus Christ, I believe in you. And I ask that you just forgive me of my sins and I'm sorry that I thought that there was another way. And God, I just thank you that you've given the Lord to forgive me, that he was raised from the dead to prove that he has the ability to forgive sin and to offer life. And the best, the best of my ability, I open my heart and my life to him today. And I'm excited that your word tells me that if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away and all things become new. I'm excited to know that you received me and adopted me as one of your children, as your word says, and that I've become an heir of all the things that you have to offer for those who have believed in Christ. God, I love you, and I thank you for your word. And I just pray from this moment on that it will be my anchor and point of stability so that I won't wander from you, but it will draw me close to you. And we ask these things in Christ's wonderful name. Amen.